Good afternoon, Beacon. It's good to be here. As some of you may have heard, we are starting a new series on the topic of work. And the reason we decided to do this series is because we first want to prepare you now as you think about work and career as it relates to your studies. And second, uh, for when you graduate and when you leave Beacon and enter a new stage of life. So for our next four meetings, we will cover things like work in a fallen world, which we'll cover today. We'll cover work as a Christian. We'll cover work and calling. And we'll finally cap things off with a work panel where faithful members of our church will provide us much needed wisdom concerning what it looks like to be faithful in this area of our lives. So today, as you will see on your notes, we will begin by talking about work in a fallen world. And really, I hope that today's message will set the foundation for the following meetings and provide us a big picture understanding of work. We'll follow a simple outline. We will first talk about the goodness of work. Then we will talk about the fallenness of work. And we'll finish things off by talking about the redemption of work. And today's key idea on your notes there is work was meant to be good, but because of the fall, it has become a toilsome and painful burden. However, in the new creation, God will transform work back to the joyful and fulfilling endeavor it was always meant to be. So following along in your notes there, we'll start with the goodness of work. And to discuss the goodness of work, we have to go back to the creation of work. We have to go back to the creation of work itself and the blueprints that God had in mind when he created it. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And we'll start by looking at verses 26 to 29. In the opening chapter of Genesis, we see a prominent theme emerge. And that theme is the goodness of creation. In chapter 1 of the creation account, the word good is repeated seven times. And concerning the significance of this word good in the creation account, one commentator notes that the meaning of the word in these verses can refer to that which is happy, that which is beneficial, aesthetically beautiful, morally righteous, and something of superior quality of or of ultimate value. And this inherent virtue to creation, it extends to the sixth day when God creates the crown of his creation, mankind. And he gives mankind a special task, a task after he creates him. God says in verse 26 and following, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every uh, plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruits. You shall have them for food. So these verses in Genesis are famously known as the cultural mandate uh, or what some might call the creational mandate. And what theologians mean by this term here is that God commissions man and commands him to not just inhabit the earth, but to do something with it. 
Here we see that man is called to function in a particular way on the earth as they bear the divine image. But some of you might be asking, what does it mean for man to be made in God's image? We hear that term thrown around a lot, uh, that phrase being made in God's image, being God's image bearers. And how does this relate to work and man's function on earth? Well, much has been written on this subject and scholars disagree about the details. But when we read this passage, we see that the image of God must include rule or dominion over the world. What some have termed, termed vice regency or vice rule, or you might think of the term vice and vice president. And so this is because immediately following the declaration that humans are created in God's image, God commands them to rule and subdue the earth. And later in chapter 2, verse 15, uh, if you would just glance there, we read that God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So here we see that to experience our full humanity, to flourish as God's image bearers, is to take the animals, the plants, and the material of this world and to rule and take care of them and to cultivate them. So in this way, we are caretakers. We are stewards. We are rulers and cultivators of this earth. It's embedded in our very makeup and DNA. That is our purpose. Furthermore, we see in creation that God himself is innovative. He's competent. He's efficient. He's intricate and caring as a worker. His work is pristine. It is ordered and he provides for others and blesses others as he rules over his creation. So as his image bearers, we must be like God in this way. We are designed to reflect the God who creates, who orders, sustains, and blesses the world. One author puts it like this. Humans working creatively reflects their creator who took the dust of the earth and formed man out of it. As one pastor has noted, God got his hands dirty in creation. The triune God of the Bible is not depicted as some distant deity, but as a blue collar deity, rolling up his sleeves and getting down in the dust. Indeed, it is striking when the eternal son, Jesus Christ became incarnate. He also was a worker following the construction trade of his adopted earthly father. So we see that in paradise, in God's utopia, in Eden, work is good because it is part of his perfect nature. And we as bearers of his image are to reflect that aspect of his nature in our work. And so this might come as a surprise for some of us who see work as a bad thing, maybe. Something that is a result of the fall especially even those jobs that seem labor-intensive or physically taxing, or jobs that don't make a lot of money or don't seem very meaningful. A few days ago, I had an appointment to complete my TSA pre-check, and I thought the location of the appointment would be at the airport or some office building or something like that, some government building. But when I looked at my email confirmation from TSA, it was in the, like the most random place you could think of. It was at a Staples in Torrance. And in case you don't know what a Staples is, it's an office supply store. And I remember walking in and asking the cashier uh, where to go for my appointment. And she pointed me to the back corner and I wasn't sure like if this was even gonna be there. <laughs> like I, like I, I was afraid that I was going to the wrong place or that there was some, 
some hiccup and something. Uh, but I get there and I look over and I see this tiny cubicle in the corner all the way in the back. So I go back there and there's this guy, he's sitting in this very cramped corner in this cubicle tucked in the farthest corner of the staples where they have all the things on sale that have probably been there for like, you know, 10 years and it's like all dusty. And to be honest, I was a little confused, right? And I was a little scared because, you know, I didn't know what to expect because typically when you interact with people who work for organizations like this, so whether it's the TSA, whether it's the DMV or the post office, usually these people like aren't the happiest or you seem like you're bugging them when you're asking you know, them just for the basic, most basic things. But to my surprise, this guy that I was talking to, this guy I interacted with, he was extremely friendly and he was very happy. And he made the process very smooth and it was very quick. And I remember thinking, you know, how is this guy so happy? Right? How can he enjoy his job so much? Because when I think about most people's lists of dream jobs when they grow up, call me crazy, but TSA pre-check guy in the back corner of a Staples usually isn't on top of that list. And I don't know what was going through his head or why he was so happy, why he seemed to enjoy his job and work so hard and efficiently, but I was reminded of how wrong I was to think the way I did. And I was reminded that scripture is clear that even in a job that might seem as simple and meaningless as this guy in the back of a Staples working for TSA PreCheck, even something like this has great value in it because of our dignity as God's image bearers. Here at Lighthouse, we are a white collar church. I think it's safe to say we're filled with doctors, uh, engineers, lawyers, accountants, those who went to very good schools, such as most of you here. And these things are things we typically esteem in our culture. And don't get me wrong, these are absolutely great things to aspire to and to seek to achieve. These are commendable things, and I don't want to discount that. But for those of us who don't go to the best school or land the prestigious job, we can be discouraged or embarrassed by our vocation, by our schooling, or lack thereof. Some of us might even feel worthless compared to others as we look at others. But on the other hand, those of us who did go to the good school or who work at a nice white-collar job can be proud and can look down on others because of our degree or because of our career. We might even think that we are more worth or we are worth more than others. But this is wrong thinking because we set up our own man-made standards of dignity and worth instead of measuring our dignity and worth in our identity as God's image bearers. And Genesis 1 to 2 reminds us of the dignity and necessity of all work. One author summarizes it this way. If this is true, if our work reflects the creative and caring work of God in creation, then all forms of legitimate, non-sinful work have dignity. All work done reflects the creator who formed us and has called us to create and subdue, to bring the creative potential out of this amazing world he gave to us. So we're reminded that we need white collar jobs like doctors, but we also need blue collar mechanics who fulfill God's mandate to humanity. We also need Christians in every sector to preach the gospel. In other words, if there were only white collar workers in the world, then who would make people's food? Who would keep things clean? Who would work on people's cars so they could get to work? And who would preach the gospel to people in those specific vocations? 
On the other hand, if there were only blue-collar workers in the world, then who would design the roads for them to put repaired cars on? Who would give them stitches after they cut themselves making food? Robert Banks, who wrote a book called Faith Goes to Work, lists several categories of work that highlight the goodness and necessity of all types of work which glorify God. And one of the categories he lists is providential work. He says, providential work is that work which reflects God's provision for and sustaining of humans and the creation. The work of divine providence includes all that God does to maintain the universe and human life in an orderly and beneficial fashion. Thus, innumerable individuals, public utility workers, public repairmen, career counselors, shipbuilders, farmers, transport workers, mechanics, engineers, plumbers, janitors, and all who keep the economic and political order working smoothly reflect this aspect of God's labor. The truth is this, God could feed us by dropping food from the sky. He could heal us without doctors if he wanted to. He could get us from one place to another by teleporting us, but he doesn't. He uses people in their vocations to accomplish these things. And in all these various vocations, God continues his creative, sustaining, and redeeming work through us. And so this gives our work a great dignity and purpose, no matter what vocation. As Martin Luther put it in his usual Lutheran style, he said, God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. But in a fallen world, we will be tempted to place our worth and our dignity and our hope even in what kind of job we have. We'll compare ourselves to others and seek to exalt ourselves instead of God in our work. But we're reminded that what matters most is not pleasing others, not gaining approval from them or having a higher sense of self-respect or dignity because of a certain job. But what matters is that we please God and are satisfied in working for him, no matter what our vocation or socioeconomic status is. And the greatest example of this, of course, is Jesus. He didn't have a lot of money. He didn't work a job that would be considered white-collared or highly prestigious, maybe in our eyes. He worked with his hands as a carpenter. Yet he lived the most fulfilling life that a person could. So now that we've laid a foundation on the goodness of work in creation, I want to move along to the fallenness of work, the topic of this message. Um, and that begins in Genesis 3. And you'll see on your notes there that we have a few subpoints, uh, beginning with point A, which states work will be hard. Work will be hard. So when we arrive to Genesis 3, as most of us know, the good and blessed design that God has for his creation is completely inverted. Adam and Eve, they eat from the one tree God forbade them to eat from. So God, he pronounces a curse on mankind. In chapter 3, verse 17, if you would turn there just so you could see it for yourself. God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of the tree which I commanded you, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So what do we see here? Well, we see that the curse of the fall, it changes the nature of work. 
work becomes toilsome. There will be pain now in the production of food and obstacles will frustrate man's work. And there will be a sweaty struggle now as he labors until he eventually dies. And so ironically, the very ground that was under man's care in the garden, which was supposed to be his source of joy and life, becomes the source of pain and a wearisome existence. His very survival now becomes this new reality. The ground will now be his enemy rather than his friend as it resists him in this endeavor to cultivate it. Instead of fruitful vegetation springing up from the ground, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 9, thorns and thistles become the native product of the land. And this is in striking contrast to God's original creative act, where he brought forth a gorgeous and nutritious garden for the man's pleasure. One scholar writes, So the passage brings us full circle from creation's bliss to sin's burden. Adam is depicted as a broken farmer whose very meals, which are derived from the grain of his agrarian life, are spoiled by the fatigue of his striving. Some of you may know that I work at a lighthouse uh, as an intern, but I also work at a coffee shop part-time as a barista. And if you know anything about coffee, uh, you know that the most important tool or machine is the espresso machine. It is the engine that drives an entire coffee shop, and without it, you wouldn't have a coffee shop. And if you know anything about coffee, you will also know that espresso, espresso machines are very expensive, and they can be very stubborn as well. In fact, I think the espresso machine at our coffee shop runs for uh, something like $20,000. Um, but here's the fun thing about espresso machines. As I said, they could be hard because they always need attention. Um, with any espresso machine, whether it's a $3,000 espresso machine or a $20,000 one, there always has to be adjustments made to it. So every morning when we come in at 6.30, we have to reset and fix it. Uh, we have to make sure the espresso is going to be servable, that it's, that it's good. Um, and this is called dialing in. So if you're, if you're a coffee aficionado, you might know that term. Um, and every morning, we have to do this for about 20 to 30 minutes uh, as we're doing all these other things to set up the shop. And even though the espresso could be perfect the previous day, and we don't touch it, we don't do anything to it, the beans are the same, uh, the measurements are the same, it will be bad and possibly terrible if we don't double check things, if we don't, uh, if we don't redial it in every morning. And so my point is that in this world, in the world we live in, right, this is kind of a silly example, but this is the norm for us. This is just a small piece of everything that just goes wrong in work. Um, if you worked at a job before, you'll know that it takes just only a few months, right? Only a few weeks for the honeymoon phase to, to fade away and you just start noticing all these problems, all the things that are wrong uh, with this job or just how difficult the work can be. We see that things naturally go wrong in this fallen and cursed world, right? Things don't cooperate most of the time like we want them to. And so we are constantly laboring and toiling to fix things and to put them back in order. In fact, that's a lot of, what most jobs do is your whole job is just fixing things or people mess things up or you know, just trying to so solve things for clients, whatever it might be. And on top of all this, many of us, when we go out to work, will not only see that it's hard, but I think a big problem for us is that we'll see that you know, we just don't like our job. We don't like our career. And maybe you're struggling with that now as you're a student, as you're studying and preparing to go out and work. You'll see uh, that you're in uninterested right, that things aren't fulfilling, uh, but you need to pay your bills anyways. 
just to survive. Tim Keller writes, our generation insists that work be fulfilling and fruitful, that it fully fit our talents and our dreams, and that to do something amazing for the world is the end goal of everything. And that sounds great, and I think it is good to, to strive for something that is meaning and fulfilling, something you uh, meaningful and fulfilling and something you enjoy and are passionate about, something that fits your gifts. That sounds great, but the problem is that's not the world we live in. Things won't be efficient. Management will be bad and you won't get the pay you want. Many days you'll be so tired from working and commuting that you just want to be at home and do nothing and rest. And you won't want to go to work the next day, but it's not like college where you can just skip class and no one cares or no one will notice. You have to go anyway. You'll live far apart from your friends, most likely. Uh, you'll live far from your church family, and you won't be around people all the time who can encourage you when you're tired or struggling, and people who can keep you accountable as readily as your friends are now who live with you. And so this can lead to isolation and loneliness and depression. On top of all this, you'll probably start thinking of dating, and that just makes things even more complicated. There's the fear about job security, paying for rent, car payments and repairs, food, being truly independent from your parents, uh, artificial intelligence taking your job, and the list goes on and on. Maybe you're already experiencing the difficult and disappointing nature of work in this fallen world. Maybe high school was a breeze for you and you finally get to college and everyone is just as smart as you, if not smarter. You study and study, but you still fail your exams. You get no internship offers and you're afraid that you won't find a job after you graduate. Your peers are excelling while you're staggering. You see no fruit from all of your labors and studying and it just doesn't seem fair. And as you go out into the workforce, you'll also deal with difficult people. You'll face unfair and harsh treatment and you'll see that in letter B on your notes. And I just want to give a brief word on this. In 1 Peter 2, you can just jot this down. You don't have to turn there. But in 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 20, uh, we kind of touched on this in, in our series, uh, Sunday sermon series. Uh, Peter, he's speaking to Christians, and he says this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So Peter, he assumes that we will face difficulty from others in the workplace. He recognized that this is simply the reality of living in a fallen world filled with selfish and sinful people. And the workplace is an especially difficult place where you will be confronted with sin and conflict because you will be forced to work with people you don't like. People that are annoying, rude, mean to you and who treat you poorly. You will have to deal with customers and clients who are just plain disrespectful or inconsiderate. And it's not like college, again, where you can just avoid difficult people by skipping class or sitting away from them, uh, sitting, you know, at the other side of, of the classroom or even just ignoring your professor who might be, you know, mean or unfair. You still have to interact with them, these coworkers, if you're working on the same team. Another work story, before working at Lighthouse, some of you might know that I worked in insurance for several years. And I can tell you that it was one of the most challenging and sanctifying things that I've ever done in my life. Every day I was tasked 
with answering phones and talking to customers. And if you know anything about insurance, you know that people don't like insurance companies. Because with insurance, it's not like paying for other things like uh, where you automatically get something in return for the money you give. So it's not like when you give Apple money, you get this nice, fancy, awesome iPhone that you can use every day, right? Or when you pay for something as simple as boba, uh, you get to enjoy this drink. With insurance, it's the complete opposite, right? You pay all this money, hundreds of dollars a month, but you might never see that money ever again. And even if you never file a claim, if you never have an accident, you give the insurance company no reason to increase your rates, your rates will still go up sometimes, actually a lot of times, because of all the other bad drivers in the world who are causing the rates to go up. That's just how insurance works. So when people call, and when I would answer the phone, they were not usually in the very best mood. They were not very happy to talk to me. They were kind of just looking to get their hands on somebody to just vent and let out all their anger after they see their bill in the mail and they see that their rates go up. Or, yeah, their, their car or their home is being repaired and everything is going wrong in the process, and I have nothing to do with this, but I'm just the first person they're talking to. So there were days where I would simply just not want to answer the phone because I knew it was coming. Uh, I'd answer maybe like 20, 30 calls a day, and maybe half of those were, were people where I was just like waiting for someone to start yelling at me. And it became exhausting trying to fight my sin of impatience, of frustration as people sinned against me. And it was a bit of a shock that, man, this is work. This is reality in this fallen world. And I couldn't just choose not to talk to these people or just not show up to work, right? I have to survive. But it forced me to come before God every day and ask for help and forgiveness as I tried to love these people well. But it was difficult and hard the entire time. You know, and I just want to be honest, there wasn't like a happy ending to the story except for me just leaving and coming to Lighthouse to work as an intern here, <laughs> where my coworkers are, are awesome. Um, but that's what most of us are going to have to deal with, either now in school, when we deal with people, or especially when we go out and work. And it's going to be different for everybody, right? Uh, you might be a software engineer, and I don't know, you might not be interacting as much with customers All right, now I want to shift to letter C. Another aspect of working in a fallen world is that we will be tempted to replace God with our work. So the other points were more external factors of working in a fallen world, but this is more internal for us. The danger at a church like Lighthouse is not that most of us are going to struggle with financial security or finding a nice job, uh, but the greatest danger, I think, is to replace God with our work and a life of comfort and material prosperity. As one preacher once famously put it, adversity has slain her thousand, but prosperity her ten thousand. And the point is that although we may not be at risk of living in poverty or ending up on the streets, we do run the risk of replacing God with a love of money, with a love of worldly success, and building our own cozy little kingdoms. In response, I think Ecclesiastes 2 provides us some helpful wisdom and perspective. And again, you don't have to turn there, but you can just uh, put it in your notes. Um, and so this is what uh, the wise preacher of Ecclesiastes says. 
So I turned about, or this is uh, chapter two, starting in verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So the author of Ecclesiastes, he reminds us of the reality of this, that we can work very hard, we can be very successful, but to make our work and the rewards of our work, whether that be a nice house, a 401k, vacations, nice clothes, good health care, to make these things the center of our hearts and our lives is foolish because all of these things are not lasting and they will fade away. He says, you will work, you will enjoy the fruit of your labor, then you will die. And then you will pass them on to someone else who did not work for it. Furthermore, he says that we can do all of this. We can work as hard as we want and get everything that we want. But in a fallen world, there will still be uncertainty and worry. He says that even in the night, his heart does not rest. And at the end of the day, what is the conclusion that the wise author of Ecclesiastes comes to? Famously, he says that it's, and and again, it's not that work and the fruits of our labors are bad. He's not saying that all the things he's talked about in the book are bad. But in chapter 12, verse 13, he says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. He says that is a full and happy life, to fear God and please him. That is what it means to be successful. It is to be faithful to God. And that is where we find joy and fulfillment, not how much money we make or the things we have and experience through work. Many of us can look to work and school as a savior and an idol. But even when we get what we want to achieve, many of you may have experienced this, it's not as satisfying as we'd hoped. Like the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, it's chasing the wind. You might grab it, but then it's out of your hands. It's just right there again. And it's on to the next thing. So the author of Ecclesiastes, he reminds us that although we were made for work, or sorry, made to work, we were not made for work as an end in itself because we were made for God and to find our delight in serving and working for him. And so that's where we come to our last section, the redemption of work. With all this talk about the fallenness of the world and the fallenness of work, it's essential that we don't stay here, right? This can be kind of depressing and I can be kind of doom and gloom uh, preaching up here. And, and so I don't want us to be stuck here kind of in this miserable state of what work is supposed to be or, or what we think it is. So please don't get me wrong. I know in my earlier points, I talked about some bad experiences I had in work, but I can also tell you about so many great things that I'm so thankful for about both of the jobs that I mentioned, including the coworkers and the customers that I worked with. 
So I don't want to paint only a partial and inaccurate picture and make it seem like my experience was all bad or this is going to be the same experience for all of you. If anything, my experience with work has been so much more positive than it has been negative. I want to remind us that even in a fallen world, work has great dignity and it can be very rewarding. It is still good because the image of God is not totally lost in us and we still fulfill the cultural mandate through our work. But on top of this, and what's most important in my opinion, is that the gospel has massive implications on our work by redeeming it. Because God has saved us, because he has given us new hearts and given us his spirit, we are transformed people who are being renewed and redeemed into the image of Christ, the perfect man in the new Adam. And because of this, we can now work for God the right way out of service to him and to others. We can rightly enjoy the fruits of our labor without making work our God. Now we work for him and find our satisfaction and joy in him as he always intended. We can deal with disapproval from others and not being well thought of because we know God loves us unconditionally as our heavenly father. We can deal with the disappointment we might bring our parents or even our friends and other family members when we tell them we didn't get that job they always wanted us to get. We can also deal with the difficult coworker or boss who mistreats us because of the love and patience that God has shown us in Christ. We can extend that to other people as we work and be a light in the workplace. We can deal with working a seemingly boring or meaningless job, knowing that God is pleased by our hard work, no matter what we do in our work. We can deal with not making as much money as others and not being able to enjoy material prosperity because of the spiritual blessings God has showered us with and because God is our portion forever. We can deal with unemployment and uncertainty because like Paul, we can be content in all circumstances, knowing God will meet our needs. And finally, we can deal with the harsh conditions of work because we have hope in the fact that one day God will usher in the perfect conditions of a new creation. Indeed, right now, God has redeemed work by redeeming workers, by redeeming the hearts and souls of workers and transforming things from the inside out. He redeems work by changing us and making us people who work hard to serve and love him. But the great part is that this is just the beginning. It is only partial. Right now, we don't see any external change to our work. Work is still toilsome. But in Romans 8, as most of you are familiar with this text, we read that the entire creation, what does it do? It moans and it groans as it experiences the heavy burden and pain of decay and toil that the fall has brought upon creation. But Paul also says in that same text that the creation, that e the creation eagerly awaits for the full redemption of all things with great hope. And in Isaiah 65, this is extremely important because this is where we get a vivid picture of what this complete future redemption will look like. In this text in Isaiah 65, God describes the new heavens and the new earth. This is where we get that language from and when we say this phrase. And in the middle of the passage where we find no more death, no more mourning, we also surprisingly 
find a description of work. This is what God says. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord. Does this surprise you? Typically, when we think of heaven, we often imagine ourselves in white robes, singing songs to God, and certainly that will be there, and that will be a great joy. But the Bible says also that we will be working. And the encouraging, encouraging thing is this, unlike our fallen world, where we feel pain and disappointment from work and our careers or our schooling, in the new creation, we will forever enjoy the fruitfulness of good, happy, and diligent work. Work that will be rewarded when we labor for God and dwell with him in paradise forever. So this is the end of the story of work. An end that is really a new beginning. For all eternity, our work, our creativity, our industry, our skills, our labor will bring forth splendor for God's glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, we do look forward to that day. We look forward to that day when you will redeem all things. You will redeem our work where there will be no more burdensome and toilsome labor, God, but there will be joyful working to your glory and for our joy as we enjoy the fruits of our labor. So God, help us now as we are in school and struggling as we worry about the future when it comes to our careers. God, prepare us for that by reminding us of the hope we have to look forward to in eternity with you as we work for you and we spend eternity with you. We pray to that end in Christ's name. Amen.